Hi and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress From this world to that which is to come John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory As told by Zachary Bartles Chapter 22 Enchantment Hopeful was dragging with each step, he seemed to expend half of what little energy he had left, and as such, he suspected he would find himself depleted before achieving a dozen more. He suspected that Christian was just as exhausted, but was putting on a strong face for his friend, injecting each step with a spring he neither believed nor successfully executed. Still, his companion's commitment to bringing them both over and out of this land, and his confidence that it could be done, was truly a boon to Hopeful. Let us occupy our minds somehow, Christian said. Keep ourselves alert and awake. Good idea, Hopeful said. Perhaps you could write a hymn about this place. I'd love to see the creative process. Oh, that is an intriguing proposition, but I have a better idea. Why don't you try writing one? Hopeful considered this. I've never penned a song before, but I've always been somewhat musically inclined. I used to play the whistle, you know. Christian chuckled. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I heard. But maybe we could just start with the, uh, the words to this hymn. Hopeful mimed, pulling a knife from his side and held the invisible weapon out to Christian. <laughs> Does this belong to you, sir? He laughed. No, I didn't mean to insult you. I just... Hopeful waved his hand and laughed again. Worry not, Christian. It's not your fault. You don't appreciate fine music. Lyrics, it is. Their steps grew quicker and lighter as they spent the next twenty minutes piecing together a short stanza, Christian offering his two pence here and there, but mostly letting his friends author the piece. I think we've got a worthy verse, Hopeful announced at last. When saints do sleepy grow, let them come hither, and hear how these two pilgrims talk together. Yea, let them learn of them in any wise, thus to keep open their drowsy, slumbering eyes. Saints' fellowship, if it be managed well, keeps them awake, and that, in spite of hell. So, what do you think? It's a start. We can tighten it up a bit. The meter is off, but we've certainly got time. Nope, too late. I'm already composing the whistle solo in my head. Christian <laughs> laughed at this and said, I find that that sort of creative work quickens the mind for a time, but soon begin to deplete my mental resources. Perhaps we should set our hymn aside for a bit and return to some profitable conversation. If you'd prefer it, what uh, shall we speak about? Well, I have yet to hear the details of your conversion. I know the broad strokes, of course, but despite being just a few yards away, I was utterly unaware of the miracle transpiring right across the hall. That I will always discuss, Hopeful said. Of course, you're already somewhat aware of the wicked and licentious life I led in Vanity Fair, but as I told Faithful, there were many times before your arrival when I experienced a deep sorrow and a sense of clarity at the hopeless and empty life I was leading. This was likely the first preparatory workings of the Holy Spirit on my heart, and these pangs caused me to squeeze my eyes shut against the light, if you will. For, as the evangelist tells us, men prefer darkness. That is a fascinating thing to recall, is it not? I remember a similar season in my own former life, dwelling in destruction. 
Enlightened as we are now, it is hard to fathom that we responded with such revulsion to the initial working of the spirit and stirring of our souls. It is a more recent thing for me, Hopeful said, and I do recall quite well what went through my mind. I was ignorant, of course, that this building sense of spiritual panic was the work of God. No one had ever told me that this is how God begins the process of awakening a sinner, not even Mr. Liberty, the pastor of our parish. There was a disconnect for me because sin yet felt very sweet to my flesh, even as my soul suffered as a result of it. I desired the end of the suffering, but not the departure of the sin itself. These old companions of mine were truly precious to me, and as soon as the terrifying time of conviction was over, I walled it off in my heart with all the others and never brought any of them to mind again. That too sounds familiar, Christian said. And if you're anything like me, you were sometimes rid of this deep disquiet for a time. Indeed. But despite my own best efforts, it would come to the fore again and again, and I would find myself each time worse off than I had been before. Yes, yes! Like birth pains, waves of conviction seem to come amid times of relative peace and relief. And as with birth pains, they come with increasing severity, leading up to the birth, or rebirth in the case of the convert. And yet said Hopeful. During those times of ease, between seasons of spiritual suffering, although my mind was turned against my sin, a single thought could drag me back down into it, and that would be a double torment to me. And so you redoubled your efforts at Reformation. Yes, for I saw that I was on the road to damnation for certain, and for a while I would feel utterly free, until at last it came crushing back down upon the neck of all my self-improvements. This was my exact condition when I first met you and Faithful, and he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never had sinned, neither my own righteousness nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. And when the Father finally revealed the Son to you, did you find your spirit set free from this cycle of suffering? Absolutely. It made me see that all the world is in a state of condemnation. It made me see that God the Father, while perfectly just, can justly justify the sinner who comes naked, filthy, and broken to the foot of the cross. It further made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life and confounded me with a sense of my own ignorance. Suddenly, I wanted nothing but to live a holy life that I might honor the one who saved me. In that moment, I knew that had I a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I would spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. They walked in grateful, contemplative silence for a little while, before Christian held his hand up and said, Hold, brother, do you hear that? I hear nothing. Exactly. This whole time, the sound of ignorance's shuffling steps has echoed up from behind us, but I hear it no more. The two pilgrims locked eyes for a moment, and then, without a word, turned back, retracing their steps and calling out for the young man. Ignorance! 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 They found him, nearly a hundred paces back, curled up on the roadside, snoring and drooling. Well, his head may be propped on a rock, Hopeful said, but this is not the sleep of Jacob, with ladders coming down from heaven. No, it is not, Christian said, sitting the man up. This is a place where ladders come up out of hell 
to drag pilgrims down. He shook ignorance roughly at the shoulders until his eyelids fluttered. Oh, what do you want? He complained. Get up, ignorance. This is not a safe place to sleep. Oh, go away, the young man said, his head lolling back, mouth hanging open. Hopeful grabbed him by the collar and dragged him up to his feet. As he stood, they heard the distinct sound of jingling chains, although they saw no shackles on the man's ankles. Stand and walk, Hopeful shouted. We will not leave you be until you are on your feet once again and walking with us along the narrow road. Ignorance pushed the pilgrims away and smoothed his garment. Well, I am now refreshed, he said. And that is why I will continue on my journey, not because you two busybodies insist I do. That suits us just fine, Christian said. And I will continue on alone. Christian turned to his companion and said, It seems the thanks we get for saving this man's life is to be sent away post-haste. Ignorance somehow yawned and scoffed at the same time. <laughs> Waking a man from a nap and saving his life are two very different things. Do you two have to be so dramatic about everything? Go on, I'll follow presently. How about you go ahead of us? Hopeful asked. That way you can walk alone and we can have peace of mind that you haven't fallen asleep again. Ignorance laughed. Oh, I see your plan. You think you'll catch up to me and draw me back into conversation, but you underestimate ignorance to your own peril. You will only ever see my backside again until we've reached the city. First me, and then you. And with these words, I bid you farewell. Your shirt has come unbuttoned there. Christian looked down and refastened the errant button. <laughs> there, ignorance said. Now I've saved your life too. <laughs> <laughs> then he spun on his heels and marched off toward the east at a good clip. I fear it will go ill for him in the end, Christian said. I agree, and there are many in his condition, not only in conceit, but in Vanity Fair as well. And in destruction, said Christian, and all along the way. As the book says, he has blinded their eyes, lest they should see. But tell me, what do you think of such people, Hopeful? Do they ever have times of conviction, as you had in Vanity? Do they ever fear that they are in a dangerous position? Hopeful gave a deep shrug and said, You tell me, for you are the elder brother. I think they might. Although, in their ignorance, I doubt that they recognize such convictions as being for their good. Rather, a, a fearful feeling descends upon them, and they immediately try to stifle it not only by gratifying the flesh, but by flattering themselves and, and their own hearts, as ignorance has done whenever we bring up the topic. You've hit on something there, Hopeful said. For while the pilgrim is called to be strong and courageous, fear is often vital in sending sinners out on the good road. Yes, the right kind of fear. The word itself says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do you mean by the right kind of fear? Christian thought for a moment. I think right fear is marked by three things. It begins with a conviction of sin, it drives the soul to hold fast to Christ for salvation, and it results in a growing reverence for our great King. Even as we near the city, such holy fear keeps us from turning to the right or to the left, lest we dishonor him in the sight of his servants or even his enemies. I fear that ignorance and his ilk, while they have some form of conviction, 
do not possess the kind that brings them to the place of, of holy fear. Yes, I have seen this many times, Hopeful said. The stifling of conviction before real godly fear can take hold. There is self-delusion in this. A man convinces himself that these fears are from the devil, not of God. After all, he thinks, why would a good God wish to frighten me? And so he resists them with all his might, convinced that he is undertaking the good fight. After all, if faith and fear are opposites, and in the right context I suppose they sometimes are, then any fear must be a great danger to his faith, such as it is. This is what he tells himself, and this sort of foolish oversimplification has helped many an ignorant man justify the hardening of his heart against the work of the Spirit. I believe you have struck the nail on its head, Hopeful. And, of course, there is the fact that godly fear, which accompanies conviction, threatens to bring down the house of cards that is their pitiful self-holiness. By carnal instinct, then, they resist with all their might. How much farther? Hopeful suddenly asked. <laughs> you remind me of my boys on a long journey. Is our conversation that tedious to you? No, but if I knew how much longer, I would be less tempted to rest. Besides, we have a map, and we've already been rebuked once for failing to use it. Fair play, Christian said, pulling out the document and unrolling it. They stood in the middle of the path for a few minutes, alternating between squinting at the map and gazing off into the distance. Finally, Hopeful pointed at a tall rocky spire off the way to their left. That must be Castle Rock, and if that's the case, we are only about two miles from the end of this enchanted ground. Christian looked to the top of the rocky structure and mused, I've got half a mind to, to climb that thing and see if the city gates are visible from the top. But uh, I don't think I'll... I'm willing, Hopeful said. Let's go. It's awfully high. You wait here, Hopeful said. I'll be right back. He dashed off toward the rock formation, leaving a cloud of dust behind. The thought of ascending to such heights, or even watching his friend do so, turned Christian's stomach and tilted his senses, compounding the sleepiness of the place. He turned his back to Castle Rock, and time seemed to crash to a halt, even as his mind came rushing back to full vigilance. Hovering there before him was his enemy, Apollyon, a wicked sneer on his frightful face. Without a moment's hesitation, Christian pulled his sword, rushed forward, and made to sever the monster's legs. Apollyon's form disappeared in a wisp of black smoke, and Christian's blade passed through unimpeded, just as the apparition reappeared to his left, circling the pilgrim and laughing uproariously. <laughs> Let me fear only you, Christian prayed as he fastened his shield down to his forearm. He felt the spirit burning within him, a source of strength and courage. I know you fear me, Apollyon spat. Why deny it? Christian smiled. You know, I heard you were punished by your master when I opened you and sent you fleeing from the valley some time ago. Nothing like a little insult for your injury, am I right? Apollyon's wicked grin faltered for a moment, and Christian pressed in. You wonder how I know this, he said. Your flatterer. He's awfully loquacious. And Apollyon, I have no reason to be wary of you, but you have learned the hard way to fear my sword. I assume that is why you're afraid to face me hand to hand again, instead hanging here as a vaporous specter. 
Christian felt a pang of conviction and knew he was in danger of boasting against his enemies, the very thing he had recently warned Hopeful against. He prayed for humility as Apollyon continued to circle him, growing larger with each pass. And then, of course, I'm curious, how did it go when you arrived at the sight of that shredded net and faced the Shining One there? If I was able to defeat you once, surely that great warrior could best you every day of the year. Apollyon came to a stop and his yellow eyes glowed bright. I smelled your trap from miles away, and further followed the scent of your sloth and fear to this place, where I chose my ambush and have been waiting for you. And be assured, if I appear to be an apparition, that is in you, not in me. You are ill-equipped to deal with the air in this place, Pilgrim. Why don't you just close your eyes and- Suddenly, the demon's own eyes flew wide, glowing with alarm and fixed upon something or someone behind Christian. The Shining One, Christian thought with great satisfaction. He's tracked this filthy monster down and has come to finish the job. Apollyon turned and disappeared into the wind, tendrils of black smoke. Christian turned again toward Castle Rock, preparing to kneel before the great heavenly warrior, but instead he saw Hopeful, breathing heavy, cheeks red, his hair goofy and windblown. We were right about the distance, I think, he said. Another two miles or so. Christian gaped at his friend. Had Apollyon just fled at the sight of Hopeful? Or was it just a coincidence? Are you all right, Christian? You look like you've seen a phantom. Christian shook his head and said, I'm fine, I was just listening to your assessment and remembering when you said the black smoke was either 10 miles away or, uh, 30. Hopeful laughed. Sure, I'm not great with distance, but the map clinches it. And, oh, Christian, I wish you had come with me. The climb has left me drained indeed, but the sight of the shining glory beyond this land has stoked the flame of my zeal all the more. Let us press on toward the goal. As they began to walk again, Hopeful said, I'm quite relieved and a bit surprised we haven't come across ignorance catching another nap. Perhaps we misjudged him. I sure hope so, Christian said, but I think it may be spite propelling him forward, more than longing for the heart of the king. He fell silent for a moment, before abruptly asking, Tell me, Hopeful, did you always live in the town of Vanity? Born and raised. Did you know a man from around your parts named Temporary? He was known quite a few years back as an up-and-comer in the world of religion. Came from a little town with a pretentious name, which I can't seem to recall. Sudogratia! Hopeful exclaimed. And yes, I know him. That town is just a mile or so off from Honesty, which put him only three miles from my boyhood home. You knew him, or you knew of him? Perhaps somewhere in between... Uh, I was a lad when he briefly became the talk of the town. As I recall, he lived next door to a man named Turnback. In his early days, yes, Christian affirmed, he even dwelt under the same roof with him. I bring up this man, Temporary, because he doesn't seem to have fit into either category that we've been discussing, neither a pilgrim who overcomes to the end, nor an ignorant soul who stifles all conviction and never catches sight of his sins. Rather, this man seems to have had a true awakening to the gravity of his transgressions and their wages to boot. I must agree, Hopeful said. 
My house was not far from his, as I mentioned, and he often came to see my late father, weeping and wailing so that you could hear him coming a long way off. I pitied him greatly then, and now, as I think back to his deep sorrow and the pious reputation that he built up afterward, it seems as though he must have been to the place of deliverance. If only, Christian said. Not all who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. Temporary did once tell me that his mind was made up to go on pilgrimage. He spent a great deal of time stockpiling supplies for the journey and was nearly finished when he became acquainted with a man named Save Self. After that, the idea of pilgrimage faded from his thoughts and he used what food he'd gathered to throw a party for that man and his friends. Hopeful shook his head. So sad. I wonder what could possibly prompt someone, after feeling the sorrow for sin and tasting the excitement of pilgrimage, to suddenly backslide like that. I've thought a lot about this, Christian said, and have come to the conclusion that it happens in three steps. First of all, though their consciences are awakened, their minds remain unchanged. As a result, when the power of guilt has waned, their motivation to be religious goes with it, and they naturally return to their own way, just as a dog returns to its vomit without thinking about whether that vomit is truly a good meal or why it was expelled from his body to begin with. He simply wolfs it down because that is a dog's nature. While we have observed that fear often works to our good in bringing us to repentance, if fear of hellfire alone motivates us rather than a fire for serving heaven, it will always be temporary. For such fear fades with time, leaving the man worse off than he was before. The next step, I believe, also has to do with fear, this time the fear of men, which according to King Solomon is a great snare. As the terrors of hell ebb away over time, the world stands by to tell them that it's all nonsense and urge them to be wise, or at least worldly wise, not risking all they have in this world in order to obtain they know not what. That was quite prevalent in my hometown, Hopeful said. There was a worldly shame attached to religion there. People tended to be proud and haughty, while religion, and especially pilgrimage, was seen as low and contemptible. Now, I'm curious, how do you describe the third and final step? At this point, what little guilt or fear remains in their hearts becomes odious to them. It may have initially pushed them toward the cross, but upon further reflection, that awakening was only a brief stirring in the midst of a deep slumber. Once again asleep to the wrath of God and the reality of hell, they set about hardening their hearts once and for all and all the more. Yeah, it makes me think of a felon quaking before the judge. He seems to be repenting as heartily as any man might, but only the fear of the gallows is on display. He's had no change of heart or mind or will. Should the judge give him his liberty, he will be a thief and a rogue still. That's a good analogy, Christian said. So, what do you think of my three steps? Is that how a man like Temporary, who has had all the outward signs of repentance, might fall away in a short time? I have no quarrel with what you've said, but it seems rather vague. Let me tell you what I've seen in specific cases, even before my own conversion. After a short time, someone who seems a pilgrim, perhaps a new convert, or perhaps a veteran of the way, begins by letting his thoughts drift off from the remembrance of God, from death, from the judgment to come, 
And to that end, he begins letting slide his private duties, such as prayer, curbing his lusts, repenting of sin, and keeping watch. He shuns the company of lively and warm Christians, and as a result, grows cold to public duty. I'm talking about attending worship, hearing the word, godly fellowship, and the like. At this point, he is emboldened to point out the infirmities of other believers, subconsciously laying the groundwork to abandon his own religion. For if every pilgrim is to some small degree a hypocrite, how can pilgrimage be a valid pursuit? With this and other seeds of doubt, he devilishly prepares to throw religion off his back. The final nail is that he begins to associate with carnal men and women, not to serve as salt and light to them, but through secret discourses and wicked deeds to be dragged back into the dark. If he can find some others who have professed faith in Christ and yet do and say the same things, all the better. And of course, I mean all the worse for his soul. By this point, he has begun to play with little sins openly, and it isn't long until he is fully hardened in his heart and inoculated against the gospel. Thus, he is launched once again into the gulf of misery, and unless some miracle of grace should prevent it, there he will perish eternally in his own deception. The pilgrims' hearts were heavy at this, and they studied their feet as they walked, observing a moment of sorrowful silence for the lost souls that had deceived themselves. It was Hopeful who first noticed the difference in the air. He drew in a deep breath and said, Do you feel that? Christian followed suit and answered, Yes, the air is no longer thin. In fact, it's rather sweet and pleasant. We're through the enchanted ground. At this, they both looked up ahead, only to see the narrow way curving to the right, lined on both sides with tall flowering trees, although it was late summer. The two of them rushed along the lane, which was both smooth and soft underfoot. Rounding the corner, they stumbled to a halt and dropped to their knees. They were looking out over a breathtaking land. Everywhere their eyes fell, they saw flowers and blossoming vines, fruit-bearing trees and crystal-clear springs. The sound of cooing doves filled the air. Surely we have reached the land of milk and honey, Christian said, his voice not much more than a whisper. Hopeful could only nod, his mouth hanging wide. They'd been sitting there for twenty minutes, gazing out over the lushness of the land, when an older woman happened by, gathering peaches in a large basket. "'Christ be with you, my friends,' she said. "'Are you just arriving?' Christian and Hopeful nodded, dumbly. The woman laughed. "'I was the same way when I first saw this place.' "'Where are we?' Hopeful managed to ask. "'It is called Beula, which of course means married.' Here the sun shines night and day, and so we are well beyond the influence of the valley of the shadow of death and the reach of the giant despair. And do you see that hill? The people of Beulah dwell on the far side of it, which is within sight of the celestial city. Please take us there, Hopeful said, rising to his feet. It would be my pleasure. My name is Reverence. She offered each of them a peach and led them further along the way, which passed right through the sweet land. Only as they began to eat it did it occur to them that this woman appeared to be from some distant land to the north. As they neared the top of the hill, they were surrounded by many people coming and going who seemed to be from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and yet Christian and Hopeful seemed to be able to understand them all. Cresting the hill, the brightness of the city, no longer a shining point of light in the distance, was at first overwhelming. 
Over the course of several minutes, their eyes adjusted so that they no longer ached, but still the pilgrims could not see the city clearly when they gazed upon it. As their vision returned, they saw Shining Ones casually walking here and there as if they were going about their business in the market. What is the meaning of this? Christian asked. The Shining Ones commonly walk here, Reverence said, for this land is on the borders of heaven. Come, follow me. The three of them passed through a massive celebration in progress, and each was handed a piece of warm bread and a goblet of wine. Before they could ask what they were toasting, a loud cry came forth from out of the city beyond, booming voices calling out, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. And the people of the land replied in unison, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power and might forever and ever. Only when they looked at each other did Christian and Hopeful realize that they too were joyfully shouting the response. What kind of banquet is this? Hopeful asked. A continual celebration, said Reverence. For here the covenant between the bride and the bridegroom is ever renewed. The bridegroom rejoices over us, his bride, the sought out and redeemed of the Lord, and we rejoice over him. Christian and Faithful stayed in the midst of the celebration for hours, enjoying the food and drink, but all the more enjoying the conversation which was only about the glory of the city before them and the goodness of their mighty king. Although the sun was yet shining, Reverence said, It is time for me to retire for the night. I have enjoyed this time of jubilant praise, and I have loved getting to know you two brothers. But I need to rest for a while and to spend a few hours in solitary prayer. I believe I will be called to the city in the morning. Would you like to see where you may lay your heads? They agreed that some rest would do them well and followed reverence to the north end of the slope, which was covered in tents, each one opening toward the shining city. Reverence brought them to the mouth of one, its flap tied open, and said, Make yourself at home here. You can rest without fear in this place. Christian and Hopeful bid Reverence farewell and laid down upon two soft bedrolls already stretched out. They gave thanks to God for bringing them over the enchanted ground and into this marvelous place, and then they closed their eyes. And rather than keep them awake, the warmth of the sun in their face and the shining light of the city itself only served to usher them off to a restorative sleep. When they awoke, they ate again and spoke with more of the land's inhabitants. Christian and Hopeful soon agreed that welcoming new pilgrims into this land was their favorite pastime. With joy, they brought them over the hill into the midst of the celebration and in sight of the shining city, just as reverence had done for them. Some of these were surprised to have made it so far, and some were so tired as they reached Beula that they collapsed into the arms of their fellow saints. Reverence herself was gone now, having crossed over to the city, and it felt good for Christian and Hopeful to carry on her work. The pilgrims remained in this land for a season, cherishing every day, but also yearning more and more deeply for their ultimate home. Finally, the morning came, when Christian and Hopeful arose, and they both knew that they would enter the land that day. Thanks for listening. 
To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress and or take two minutes to leave an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2023, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com and Audio Micro. For more engaging audio fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and Silva. Got to get it.